This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today we're delving into what an emerging, what, um, into what is an emerging movement in porn production and consumption, feminist porn. I will read a passage from our book which lays out a usable definition of the phenomenon we are tracking. As both an established and emerging genre of pornography, feminist porn uses sexually explicit imagery to contest and complicate dominant representations of gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, class, ability, age, body type, and other identity markers. It explores concepts of desire, agency, power, beauty, and pleasure at their most confounding and difficult, including pleasure within and across inequality, in the face of injustice, and amongst the limits of gender hierarchy and both heteronormativity and homonormativity. It seeks to unsettle the conventional definitions of sex and expand the language of sex as an erotic activity, an expression of identity, a power exchange, a cultural commodity, and even a new politics. Feminist porn creates alternative images and develops its own aesthetics and iconography to expand established norms, excuse me, sexual norms and discourses. It evolved out of and incorporates elements of the genres of porn for women, couples porn, and lesbian porn, as well as feminist photography, performance art, and experimental filmmaking. It does not assume a single female viewer but acknowledges multiple female and other viewers with many different perspectives. Feminist porn makers emphasize the importance of their labor practices in production and the treatment of performers and sex workers. In contrast to norms in the mainstream sectors of the adult entertainment industry, they strive to create a fair, safe, ethical, and consensual work environment and often create imagery through collaboration with their subjects. Ultimately, feminist porn considers sexual representation in its production as a site for resistance, intervention, and change. So we'd like to begin today with that kind of open-ended definition in mind. But first, let me thank um, those people who made this event possible. Thanks to our sponsors, the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center, um, New Sexualities RFG, Asian American Studies, Film and Media Studies, the SAGE Sarah Miller-McCune, Dean of Social Sciences, the Carsey Wolf Center, Kink University Fetish Fellowship, so happy that that exists on our campus, um, Women, Gender, and Sexual Equity, Women's Commission, Queer Commission, the Student Commission on Racial Equality, Take Back the Night, Human Rights Board, AS Office of the Student Advocate, Pride, and AS Finance Board. I also want to thank Alejandro Kasazian, Corey Lau for their design services, Emily Zinn, Jessica Parra, and Luann Lockwood for accounting services and logistical support, Carly Thompson as a collaborative advisor, Carsey Wolf Center interns and Pollock Theater manager Matt Ryan, all of our volunteer workshop facilitators, greeters, and photographers, and our organizing team, Vanessa Ramos, Brandon Pineda, Toby Blakeney, Lauren Clark, and Andre Thuse. These, it wouldn't have been possible without this team. I want you to wave, say hi. That's where they are. They're so great. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> now, I would like to take a moment. Um, everybody has bios in their brochures, but I want to just give um, a short bio um, of each of our esteemed speakers today. Tristan Termino is an award-winning author, columnist, editor, sex educator, radio host, and feminist 
pornographer. She's the author of seven books, and she runs the adult film production company Smartass Productions, and has directed and produced 24 adult films. The winner of multiple AVN, that's、um, Adult Video News, and Feminist Porn Awards. She is the host of Sex Out Loud, a weekly radio show on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Jiz Lee is a genderqueer porn star known for their androgynous look, female ejaculation, vaginal fisting, strap-on performances, and fun sex-positive attitude. That is what I call a bio.、Um, the award-winning performer perform,、uh, prefers the pronouns they and them, so please, if you're writing about them,、um, use that proper pronoun. And advocates for ethical pornography that creatively and genuinely reflects queer sexuality. Ever fascinated by the radical potential of sex, love, and art, Jiz runs a personal blog and erotic phil- philanthropic project, Karma Pervs, at jizlee.com. They are the editor of the upcoming anthology "How to Come Out Like a Porn Star: Adult Industry Essays on Family Matters." Cinnamon Love is an adult performer and fetish model. Performing in adult films since the early 1990s, she has since appeared in approximately 200 movies. She directed the AVN-nominated *My Black Ass 4* and was admitted to the Urban X Hall of Fame in 2009 and the AVN Hall of Fame in 2011. Dylan Ryan is a porn star, writer, social worker, performance artist, and self-professed gender and sexuality geek living in San Francisco. Dylan holds a double bachelor's degree and recently completed a master's in social work from a Canadian university, where she studied the rise of feminist pornography and the intersections between sex work and social work. A yoga instructor and amateur filmmaker in her spare time, Dylan hopes to continue her academic career and become Dylan Ryan, PhD. April Flores. Flame-haired vixen of the new porn order is one of the most striking examples of the new sexy. From her work as a BBW adult film star to her unrepentant feminism and body-positive smashing of stereotypes, Flores has graced the covers of Bazaar and AVN magazines, and been featured in several fine art photography books, and has appeared in adult films in every genre in the porn industry. April lives and creates in Los Angeles with her husband Carlos Bats. Where is he? Oh here, yeah, <laughs> Carlos Bats. See Bats fly. Is an award-winning artist, photographer, and director. Bats's artwork has appeared on book covers, album covers, music videos, and movies. Carlos has four internationally distributed hardbound coffee table books: Fat Girl, Wild Skin, Crazy Sexy Hollywood, and American Gothic, that showcases artistic approach to photography. Bats has directed independent features, Voluptuous Biker Babes. As well as underground art films like American Gothic and April Flores World. Born in Baltimore, Bats now lives and creates in Hollywood with his muse April Flores. Kevin Heffernan teaches courses in media, culture, and history in the Division of Film and Media Arts at Southern Methodist University. He's the author of Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold: Horror Films in the American Movie Business, 1952 to 1968. Um, from Duke University Press, and is co-author with Francis Milstead and Steve Yeager of *My Son Divine* from Alston Publications. His essays on horror film, Asian cinema, queer filmmakers, sex exploitation, and porn can be found in a number of journals and critical anthologies. He is currently writing a book-length industrial, cultural, and aesthetic history of contemporary moving image pornography. Celine Pedenishimizu works as a filmmaker and film scholar, and is professor in the department. 
of Asian American Studies here at UCSB. She's the author of The Hypersexuality of Race, Performing Asian Slash American Women on Screen and Scene, which won the Cultural Studies Book Award from the Association of, American, of Asian American Studies, and Straight Jacket Sexualities, Unbinding Asian American Manhood in the Movies. Her feature film, Birthright, Mothering Across Difference, won the best feature documentary at the Big Mini DV Festival. Constance Penley is professor of film and media studies and co-director of the Carsey Wolf Center at UCSB. She researches in film and media history and theory, feminist theory, cultural studies, contemporary art, and science and technology studies. A founding editor of Camera Obscura, Feminism, Media, and Cultural Studies here at UCSB, we house it, and co-editor um, uh, of Feminism and Film Theory, Male Trouble, Technoculture, and the Visible Woman, Imaging, Technologies, Science, and Gender. She's the author of The Future of an Illusion, Film, Feminism, and Psychoanalysis, and NASA slash Trek, Popular Science, and Sex in America. Oh, and the forthcoming Teaching Pornography. That's me. Um, Mireille Miller-Young, <laughs> I'm an associate professor of um, feminist studies, like I said, and I research, I said her research, I research race, um, gender, sexuality, and visual culture, media, and the sex industries, and my fourth book, coming book is called A Taste for Brown Sugar, Black Women, Sex Work, and Pornography. Thank you. So, um, Tristan Termino is going to introduce... <laughs> Tristan Termino is going to moderate um, this discussion for us. Thank you so much for doing that. Thanks, Mireille. Um, welcome, everyone. I'm going to moderate. And we have um, just one round of questions that we're going to pose. And then I think we have additional questions from student groups, Mireille. Is that right? They didn't submit. Or did we have them? OK, okay great. All right. So All right. slip good, good. those Thank to me you. secretly. No one will see it um, <laughs> And uh, as we go along. So I want to start with Celine. I'm hoping that because this event is really celebrating the publication of the feminist porn book, you can describe what the book is about and what message or messages you want readers to take away from it. What I most want out of the book is this wonderful, uh, open-minded, and informed discussion that begins when the book was published, is enacted here, and goes on beyond us. And uh, I need to say that it's not easy to come into pornography within a world that panics, not only about our sexual lives and you know the multiplicity of our sexual desires, but also the power of representation and what it can do to you know our sexual desires, the psychic life of our sexuality. So when I was you know finishing my PhD at Stanford and study and, and I, I got money through the Social Science Research Council to become a porn expert, I spent quite a lot of time at the Kinsey Institute, you know uh, six weeks, it was six different times watching porn from eight eight to five and having a lunch break in between. <laughs> And, um, they make you take that lunch break. Yeah. yeah. So you can wash your hands. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> with three different kinds of soap. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's true. So anyway, um, when I was there and I came back to Stanford, my, my, uh, one of my advisors needed to call all of my ad advisors together and say, 
going into pornography will lead her to fall off the face of the earth. <laughs> we need to do something about it. <clears throat> so obviously I didn't fall off the face of the earth. I'm, I became a very happy person. But even last week when I was giving a talk on pornography in Seattle, I could see these young people become increasingly worried about me. And one of the questions was, are you okay? <laughs> I said, I'm really happy to do this kind of work. But I think, you know, when, when once you're very open-minded about these issues, it, it can become terrifying for a lot of people. And so um, <clears throat> to study well representations of sexuality in cinema means that you do have to go to pornography. There's much that you can find out in it, you know. So in my first book, I was very interested to see, you know, like this idea of the yellow peril, Asians are taking over at the turn of the last century. But what was going on in pornography was very different from the ideology at the time. Instead of Asians as a racial threat, they were a racial treat. So it's interesting to see the differences between, you know, uh, fantasy and history and what gets recorded, what gets passed on in terms of our knowledge. So it's super fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I also want to say that... Um, an emblem of my scholarship is to say it's not enough just to watch films, but to understand their history, to understand how they're received, and to understand the lives of the people who are making them, especially people who are performers and filmmakers who are on the ground and using their bodies to enact emotions or whatever it is that makes film so powerful, that moves us, to, you know, uh, informs us, changes our lives. And so in this way, um, what's so valuable about the feminist porn book is that it brings together not only academics who are working in the archive, looking at the social, historical, economic, and political contexts of pornography, but it brings into conversation the voices of people you know, who are on the ground, you know, who are every day using uh, their bodies and really taking the plunge of saying, what does my desire look like? And, um, <clears throat> and what does it feel like? Um, and so this perspective is very important. And I want you to appreciate you know, who's in front of you right now and the mix of conversation, mix of multiple perspectives that, you're here, that you'll hear. You know, Tracy Kwan, the sex uh, activist, sex workers' rights activist from New York, once said, you know, prostitutes and sex workers and people who work in pornography are also human beings who eat breakfast and uh, read the <laughs> newspaper and even have subscriptions. <laughs> I thought this was really useful because I do think that there's quite a lot of panic around how do people end up doing this kind of work? You know, they are so different from me. But um, today I think that uh, you'll see that these perspectives are really essential, both academic and uh, industry uh, work on sexuality and representation because it gives you a more complete picture. And this is the only way that we can solve the panic around both sexuality and the power of representation. So yesterday, Professor Constance Penley, along with Mireille Miller-Young and Dylan Ryan, appeared on HuffPost Live to talk about pornography, and specifically to talk about this new journal that's coming out from Rutledge, Porn Studies. The way the media has liked to spin this is that porn studies is a brand new field. Wow, it's so exciting. But I think that's probably news to Constance Penley, who's actually been teaching pornography here at UCSB since the 1990s. So it's not new for her. But Connie, I wonder um, if you would talk about 
Some of what you bring up in your essay in the book is about teaching pornography, and you're writing an entire book on teaching pornography. Why is it so important to teach feminist pornography specifically? Uh, I have... I've been teaching the course here since 1993. Uh, this is actually my class here that we're in. Uh, and this is the uh, 20th anniversary edition of the porn class. Uh, so yes, I have been doing this for a while. Uh, I did not start off teaching feminist pornography. Uh, my experiment was to uh, teach pornography as a popular uh, film genre uh, and industry. Uh, I, I thought that, I mean, in 1993, there, weren't, there just weren't any courses on this. Uh, and I wanted to bring it to our film and media studies curriculum, uh, which had just undergone an external review that said we were likely the best undergraduate film program in the country and praised for the depth and breadth of our curriculum across history, theory, genres, national cinemas. Um, and so I went to my, my colleagues at the time and said, you know, we are supposed to be the best and we're praised for the depth and breadth of our curriculum, but we're not teaching the most enduring and prolific of all film genres. <laughs> and, um, and also with the uh, industry just 60 miles to the south of us in the San Fernando Valley, uh, as University of California professors, we're not doing everything we can to study one of the most important elements of the culture and economy of, of Southern California, of California. Uh, and so my colleagues were so wonderful. They said, well, you're right. You know, we, we need to do this if we want to be the best. Um, so my experiment was, and I was half in women's studies, now feminist studies, and half in film studies when I first started uh, teaching. And I had to decide where was I going to teach the class. I decided to teach it in film and media studies because I knew that if I uh, uh, started teaching it in, in women's studies that every student walking into the class would think that he or she or they uh, knew uh, in advance uh, what my position was going to be as a feminist, a simply denunciatory one. Yeah. And uh, so I knew if I was going to teach it as film and popular culture, I had to teach it in a film and media department. Uh, so the way the course is structured, and I'll get to a minute how I got to feminist porn, um, is instead of starting by asking, is it art or not, is it deviance or not, but asking, what is it as film and popular culture? And so my students who are, for the most part, film and media studies majors, advanced film and media studies majors, uh, ask all the questions of pornographic film that they've learned to ask of all other forms of, of media making. You know, what were the content styles and strategies and how did those change over the decades? Uh, what, what have been the needs of production and consumption? Uh, the modes of distribution? Uh, uh, has, what has been the relation of uh, pornography to technology? Has it led technology, been an early adopter, been led by technology? And all those questions uh, the legal climate in any given era, you know, how did that affect all of those? Uh, so just the same kinds of questions that they would ask of others. Uh, this was, I think, uh, 
I, I'm immensely gratified by how successful this was. My students get to have opinions about pornography, but they have the rare opportunity to be able to have informed opinions. <laughs> so I'm going along uh, teaching it uh, history, theory, popular culture, uh, and having that be uh, enormously beneficial. And then my uh, colleagues uh, start telling me uh, that there is this uh, uh, re-emergent re feminist anti-porn movement. And I said, oh, oh, I've just been going along teaching and doing research and my students too, and you know, uh, what do you mean there's this resurgent anti-porn feminism? And lo and behold, it turns out that there is a resurgent anti-porn feminism that is a new temperance movement, you know, a new moral public hygiene movement, you know, and so I quickly became educated on that and realized that, uh, uh, that this was something uh, that uh, had to be addressed, you know, uh, studied, certainly, uh, and also uh, really listening to and working with uh, the creators. Uh, the thing that I hated most about anti-porn feminism back in the 70s and 80s and 90s uh, was the way it divided women, you know, and the way, I mean, we in academia were supposed to go save our poor victimized porn sisters and brothers, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, 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 I just think that's, that is completely crazy. And what we've done with our book, what we've done with our con conference uh, has been about, okay, we're going to create a conversation and we are going to work together. Thanks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I still have one. Yeah, you're still mine. Sorry, I have Tristan's question. Okay, Tristan. There are lots of definitions of feminist porn are offered throughout the book. But one of the most common is that it is ethical or fair trade and organic, which is what you call it. There was especially, um, this was especially emphasized in your own essay. Can you explain what is meant by fair trade or organic porn? And do you see an increase in male interest in more ethical porn? So I see a lot of parallels between feminist porn and fair trade, organic food and products. Um, I consider it fairly traded because we really do, most feminist pornographers really emphasize the importance of our labor practices. Um, so we make sure that performers are paid well, they're treated well, they're valued for their work, um, and it is in fact work that they do. Um, and we have fair working conditions. So we're not making people work for 20 hours without any food or water um, or any crazy things like that. And I see it as organic. I mean, part of that comes from my own process, but I think this is a process that a lot of feminist pornographers adopt, which is that I really create my scenes and my films around my performers. I want my performers to participate in creating this representation of their sexuality. So instead of me telling them what to do and them acting out my idea of other people's fantasies or my own fantasies, 
I actually say to them, what kinds of things do you want to do? And it's important for me to empower them to choose who they perform with, what they do, what kinds of activities they engage in, what sex toys they want, where they want to have sex, where does everyone want to have sex? <laughs> in a bed. Um, right. Because actually the last 14 times they had sex for work, it was like on a fire escape outside. It was not comfortable. So you give them a bed, they're happy. Um, and I'm also yeah. beginning to add um, artisanal to the, to the equation, which is okay. that <laughs> feminist pornographers, we take our time making porn and we, we do not make assembly line pornography, which, um, which does exist, very formulaic sort of repetitive porn. We don't do that. We actually put our hearts and souls into what we do. We're really passionate about it. And we don't cut corners. And because of that, it means you might have to pay a little more because we haven't cut corners. But I also use that word, those words, very deliberately in an attempt to link feminist porn with the fair trade organic movement. Because what I believe the fair trade organic movement has done is enacted a cultural shift. The people behind this movement and the people involved in it have convinced people, consumers, to think about where their food comes from, who makes their jeans or their clothes. They've actually, they've actually changed the way people think about consuming products, and, and in a way that's very clear. No one used to ask, where does my milk come from? The answer was the grocery store. And now people do ask that question, and, and they actually put their money where their politics is. Um, they want to know, for example, where their coffee comes from, who made it, if it was made under fair working conditions, and how it got to marketplace. So I think we're at a moment now where we really need to educate the public that not only feminist porn is out there, it exists, here's what it is, but also, I believe there are people out there who do care about the conditions under which their porn was made and the fact that, that it is made in a different way and under different circumstances. They want to know who's profiting from its consumption because many feminist pornographers are working independently, so they are in fact artisans, artisan chocolate, artisan porn. Um, and so I, I want people to start to think about that, become an informed consumer. And, um, and as for your question about men, you know, I think, I think it's really interesting because there's been this conflation between feminist porn and porn for women. Mm -hmm. And certainly feminist porn has its roots in porn for women, and there is overlap between the two. But it is actually something different. It is not simply about showing women's pleasure, showing authentic female desires, performances. It's actually about fighting and dismantling the gender binary across the board. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that a, a reporter recently asked me, who's your audience? It's lesbians, right? Mm -hmm. um, so forgive my phone, but I'm just going to read a note. And I said, Feminist porn is for viewers who want to see porn that's ethically made, explicitly consensual, features authentic, diverse representations, is anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-classist, anti-fill-in-the-blankist, anti anti mm -hmm. 
Challenges societal conventions and norms about sexuality is dedicated to creating sex positive messages that encourage and empower people of all genders and identities around their sexuality. Thank you. That's, that's it. So, Kevin. Kevin's also an expert in the field of porn studies and also of the study of horror films. One of the most popular assumptions and definitely an assertion by anti-porn feminists who Connie spoke about is that there's a lot of violence against women happening in the genre of pornography. Um, do you see violence in pornography, especially in relationship to horror film? And as an academic, what actually inspires you to want to study porn in the first place? Well, in Philosophy 101, they taught us to define a term in language that is more specific than the term you are attempting to define. And so if a person asks a question about violence in pornography, the first question I have is, well, we need to establish what violence is. Um, and, and that's very important for our purposes because in much of the classic anti-porn arguments of the 70s and 80s, as well as in its uh, contemporary variant, the definition of violence has been expanded uh, to include uh, anything that the person watching the representation doesn't like. Uh, so I think the high watermark was with the publication of Andrea Dworkin's book, Intercourse, in 1989, which defined any act of penetrative sex as an act of violence. Uh, and so therefore, it would be impossible to represent this uh, uh, without, without depicting violence. Um, then there is the controversy about alternative sexual practices such as bondage and domination and sadomasochism uh, uh, in which uh, even consensual rep representations of consensual BDSM is seen as violent. This is actually one of uh, Gail Dine's big uh, arguments is that anything having to do with uh, alternative sexual practices such as BDSM uh, group sex or anal sex is by its very nature a representation of, of violence. She said it's a form of torture too. Oh yes, like yes. Guantanamo and, and waterboarding. Yes, she wants, she wants yeah. uh, the armory to be prosecuted uh, by the UN uh, uh, it, because of the uh, international uh, conventions convention against, against violence. Against violence. Right. Okay. The armory is the headquarters of Kink. a BDSM website, kink.com. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> But if I were to uh, define violence, sort of a working definition for me would be the depiction of non-consensual uh, sex, the depiction of rape, and the de depiction of uh, kidnapping, murder, torture, things like that. Uh, we actually see that that reached a high watermark in the 1960s when filmmakers were unable to bring increasing sexual explicitness into their films. And so what they attempted to do 
was to charge up the frisson of the films that they were making uh, by, by having these stories about kidnapping, torture, rape, serial killers, and things like that. And this is the sort of so-called sexploitation roughy genre of the 1960s. Uh, when hardcore came in in the early 70s, there was a concerted attempt on filmmakers to move away from those representations and to take instead a sort of countercultural or in some cases faux countercultural approach to the depiction of sexuality that always emphasized its, its emancipatory and consensual nature. But the subgenre of the roughy, the, the rape-themed or kidnapping-themed or murder-themed uh, uh, pornographic film, did continue through the 70s, and it's still a very minor current uh, in, the, in the industry today. And when I've talked to people who have made these films, either as performers or as screenwriters or directors, what they, what they inevitably tell me is these were great to make, I actually got to act. I actually got, or in the case of the filmmakers, I actually was able to block out and light a scene in, in, a, in a very moody and expressionistic way that a lot of the folks who worked in this, this sort of underrepresented small area of, of pornography speak with great fondness of, of their time making those films and look at their work with an extraordinary amount of pride. But typically, uh, fans of pornography are not fans of violence, and there really has never been a violent-themed, sexually explicit pornographic film that has succeeded in crossing over to a mainstream audience. From the theatrical films of the 1970s, uh, through the home video era of the 1980s to the, our current uh, video-on-demand downloading era, um, the, that style of filmmaking, that sort of violent-themed uh, pornography, has always been a minority taste, and filmmakers who spend a lot of money on their films, filmmakers who, who are trying to get their product shown to a larger and diverse audience, knows that that's a huge, huge turnoff for the vast majority of the uh, of the audience, so I really don't think that that the horror film and and pornography are these sort of uh, fraternal twins that they're often depicted as in the media. And just just to get kind of film theory geeky for just a second, they're actually the opposite in terms of their fantasy structure. The horror film presents this world of normality and stability at the beginning of the film. And then that world is interrupted by this force, by this force of the monstrous. The, uh, and the monster is almost always portrayed as some external manifestation of the blocked libidinal energy of the characters that, that surround it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this, this movement from the normal to the horrific is seen literally as something to be shocking and unpleasant. And of course, at the end of the film, we can either return to the world of the normal or we can have the monster triumphant. Pornography is exactly the opposite. In the world of porn, the normal world is seen as exhausting and numbing and unfulfilling. And when we move into the fantasy realm of, of pornography, it's this unfettered 
world of pleasure. Uh, so the, the relationship between the, the reality-based space and the fantasy-based space in, in horror films and pornography are drastically opposite in how the, the pornographic film almost always re resolves this plot, conservative as the genre usually is, is these characters enter into this world of erotic abundance. They're somehow transformed and then they return to their normal world uh, regenerated in some way. So, so I, I really see the horror film and pornography as kind of being on opposite sides of the, uh, of the film genre uh, spectrum. But uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, thank great you, answer. So most of us have already discussed how important it is for the sex workers who are involved in the the production of, of these films to speak, and that's why a lot of them are featured in this book. And finally, we're having one of them speak, Dylan. <laughs> no pressure. Um, but I wonder if you will briefly tell us how has being, how has performing in porn for you been a tool of education and liberation? So when I started in the porn industry, which is uh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, this year it'll be 10 years, I started sort of as a happy accident uh, with a colleague of mine um, who wanted to start her own porn company. And we had all these ideas and she talked about it and said, okay, well you should come do it. And I thought, okay, that sounds sort of fun. And the reason why I even conceptually thought it was interesting and fun was because I, at the time, was working at a sex toy retailer and had seen quite a lot of pornography. And I didn't connect to any of it. It wasn't representing my sexuality. It wasn't anything that I could identify with. While I thought a lot of it was hot, I didn't really think that it was real, necessarily. It didn't, it didn't do anything for me in that way. Um, as a queer-identified person, I didn't really see a lot of queer representations. I saw lesbian representations, but again, they felt inauthentic to me. So in agreeing to do it, and also um, you know, starting to do porn, I really wanted to be my body, myself, be a tool for education, uh, create some of the imagery that I was interested in seeing, and uh, make the movies that I thought would be really hot. So that's where it started, and in terms of that kind of education, that's really been what the majority of my career has been all about. Um, interesting hearing you talk about BDSM because that's now a large section of the work that I've done. And my intention and direction with that work the entire time has been to educate not only women but uh, people about what it looks like to see an empowered female body and female presence inside BDSM porn, which is always considered so violent and so hardcore and so abusive. Um, I've always just wanted especially women to connect to my films, to see me and say, wow, that woman looks like she's having a really fun time. She's enjoying herself. She's getting off. Um, I'm going to give that a shot. I want to try being spanked or I want to try being tied up or I think that that looks really hot. You know, I think fisting looks fun. That's something I want to try. So the entire intention of my work has been educational and from that I feel like that is still the place that I'm most excited teaching. Um, I'm very excited about the somatic, about our desires, where they're located in our bodies, how we manifest them physically. I feel like uh, it's something that comes up with this group of people quite frequently but sex education is sorely lacking in the United States and it's sorely lacking around 
around the somatic, around the physical. We talk to people's brains. We talk to people's intellects. We don't talk to their bodies. We don't talk to how they feel, where their feelings are located, where their desires are located, what they want around those things. And we teach our children from a very young age to repress all of that, to push that down and not pay attention to how that feels physically. So I feel like that aspect of porn and the education I've been able to do as a result has really been focusing around that. Um, Personally, porn has been really great for me. Um, It's been a personal tool of education. I have been able to discover so many things about my sexuality that I don't think I ever would have been able to discover. Uh, Again, funny that kink.com comes up because the armory is this huge building in San Francisco, for those of you that don't know. It's almost a full city block. And um, I call it BDSM porn Disneyland because within the walls of the armory, um, you know, those folks are pretty much able, just like Disneyland, to create pretty much any fantasy you would want. So through my work there and through being a part of that community and engaging there, I've been able to explore stuff that I just don't think I would have the means or opportunity to explore otherwise. Um, I often feel really grateful and also slightly concerned about people who, I I wonder how they're going to find their fetish, you know? I can say, okay, I really like nurse play, you know, in the middle of the month with a tall guy versus a short guy with my earlobes pinched and some nipple clamps and a pair of high heel shoes. And I can say that. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel, I feel really lucky that I've had that breadth of experience. But what about those people that never get to try and nurse play or have their ears pinched with nipple clamps on? I mean, how are they going to figure it out? Um, so I, it's Coming been... to the workshop. It's no, I'm yeah, it's a, it's a valid question, right? So I, I genuinely, from, from my heart, and that having been a mostly positive experience for me, I really wish that for people. Um, and I hope that for people. Um, and so I continue to want to be sort of the bridge of education in that way. When I figure out what my fetishes are, what I like, to then be able to show that on camera to represent that in a way that somebody, again, might uh, connect to that and say, oh, that's really great. Um, I'm going to give that a whirl. That looks really fun. Yeah. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks. Okay. I got this. That's great. Mireille, your piece in the book explores the work of uh, black female directors, of which there are very, very few still in the past and today. Mm-hmm. Do you think there need to be more women of color directors in order to shift the way women and all people of color are represented in porn? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, you know, there's a saying about controlling the means of production. It actually means something. Um, when you were in the seat of power to be able to make these decisions. And it has to go beyond directing. It has to go to producing. Um, what people like Shine Louise Houston or Nina Fielmar Joyner are able to do as their own producers is have a lot more space to explore um, what they want to put on camera without as many constraints as, say, um, performers who are get an opportunity to direct already under an already established company, for sure. But I think that it's challenging either way. I think it's challenging for performers turned directors. I think it's challenging for people with art and film backgrounds who are becoming directors. Um, 
And that's because fundamentally for black women, you have to confront this question of race and this imaginary around racial difference, the fundamental kind of quality of racial otherness that is ascribed to um, black female bodies. Historically, since slavery, um, we've been seen as, as racial deviants. Um, and we've had all of these fantasies projected onto our bodies. And so when we necessarily come to the table to try to talk about what our desires are, we have to wade through all of these things that already exist. Um, we have to confront this kind of always um, present figure of the hoe, for example, or the Jezebel it used to be, um, or of the mammy, the asexual kind of black woman who nurtures other people's sexuality but not her own. Um, the kind of idea of black female cheapness and, and, and animality. Um, and this kind of real um, push of the industry to, uh, it uses all of its laborers, I think, in ways that make them super disposable. And that's an, another aspect about um, maybe this kind of feminist vision or analytic that we're trying to push um, to think about how we can make workers not be disposable in other in alternative spaces of porn. Um, but I've found in my research that black women are often super disposable in this kind of pornographic machine. They are um, paid less. Um, they experience more kind of microaggressions on set. Um, they are marginalized in ways big and small. Um, and it just reminds me of one of the most powerful interviews I did in my research, in addition to Cinnamon, who's been a major force in my research, as um, Angel Kelly, who was the first black contract girl in the 80s. And that meant that she had a contract from a major company um, for the first time. And this is when they were really starting this kind of doing a, almost like a Hollywood starlet type of format in the industry. Um, get, companies would get you know, a starlet who would represent them and pay them exclusively. And it was a big honor and a big deal and very well paid. And she was the first black woman to do this. Um, I found her working at a TGA Fridays in Memphis years later after having left the industry, raising three children by herself. Um, when I talked to her, she didn't believe me that people remembered who she was. She was stunned. And it started something in her where she decided, like, she talked to her teenage daughter about it, and this is, you know, some years ago, so her teenage daughter, like, made a MySpace page for her. It was just, like, big back then. And then she calls me, and she's like, I've got a thousand followers on this MySpace, and you know, and now I'm going to put on a Dirty South show, and I'm going to do um, a strip tease and a, and a, and a kind of Dita-Fon tease and like a bubble bath, and, and it's the new Angel Kelly's back. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. So we plan to go to Vegas together and to, you know, they have this, um, the award show, um, the Oscars of the AVNs. Um, you, now they stream it on Showtime, the AVN Awards. I can't believe it. But I decided to bring her, and you know, I was trying to do a little bit of research, but also documentary, and I thought it would be cool to have her come back and, and kind of see what her reaction would be to how the industry has changed all these years later. She was a star in like 85, 86, 87. Um, and at first she gets off the plane and she's so excited and she's looking really cute and she has cute t-shirts and the ponytail and the thing. And she's like, oh, we're gonna do this. Yes, okay. And then we get there and it's a huge convention hall and it's like 50,000 people go. And people don't 
recognize her or remember her. A few people do, there's a few veterans. But increasingly, she sees the young, white female body projected everywhere, the hustler girl and the vivid girl and the evil angel girl, and everybody's walking around and kind of following them. And we go see where the black people are, which are usually on the side and the back, right, in the kind of smaller tables. And um, <coughs> increasingly, it kind of starts to take a toll. And by the second day, her voice completely disappeared. Mind you, I'm trying to shoot a film and having her talk. She gets laryngitis out of like the, the hurt of not being visible. And we score some tickets to the show, but instead of, you know, from this guy who knew her back in the day and who publishes AVN, he refused to come over. He just has his assistant give us the tickets. And it ends up being in the nosebleed seats of a giant arena. And so we sit there. Oh, and before that, there was a press line. They direct us, no, you can't go on the press line. Go over here. Okay, now sit in the nosebleed seat. And we're looking down at the whole new porn landscape. And she begins to cry. And that's what I write about in one of my chapters of my book, which will be out next year. Um, how could the industry forget this woman? Um, what does it mean to be a black woman? I mean, this is someone who had to play maids often um, in that role because that was a fantasy big time in the 80s. It was like a kind of give me the break parody, like let's have the black woman be the maid to the white family. Um, and she didn't mind. She said, you know, it's, it depends on what the maid gets to do. Does the maid get to, like, fuck everyone and be really cunning and, you know, stick it to them in the end? And I said, that's interesting. Um, but I am very uh, fascinated by how uh, my informants, the black women that I, I interview, negotiate this terrain that is a racialized one, that is a hierarchy, that is uh, a, a, a capitalist uh, force that um, eats people up and can chew them out, and how they survive that and how they um, come out as resilient um, and creative and dynamic, how they support their families and their communities on it, and how they, even in the, under the most constraint, can create something that they feel is a sexual expression that they want to give, an authentic sexual expression that says something very different than what the title of the movie is. <laughs> Cinnamon, picking up on this theme that Mireille just talked about, about being, being visible or being not visible, one of the things that you write about in the book is how, as a director and performer, you'd like to see more representations of black couples doing BDSM or rough sex or power dynamic play, and because you just don't see enough of it. And I think we're all aware now, there's this thing called the internet, uh, and it just has, it has seemingly something for everyone. I mean, it, on the surface, it appears as if everyone's tiny little micro kink and micro fetish and micro turn on is covered somewhere. If you, if it turns you on, we can find a website that works for you. But that's not true when it comes to people of color. And I'm wondering if you want to address why you think that is. 
Um, before I answer the, that question, um, I want to say that I had I had a really nasty fall yesterday. So my I have a mild concussion, and my words and my thoughts are not fluid as fluid as I would like them to be. So if I stumble a little bit, just bear with me. Um, uh, I, I think the the reason for that is is twofold. One, uh, the the majority of porn that is out there that's being produced is produced for a predominantly white male um, buying audience. Um, I, years ago in, I think, 97 or 98, Christian Mann, who was the um, then owner of Video Team, which was the largest black um, porn company, told me that he produced porn for, for his, his consumers and that black men were, black and Latin men were, were renters, not buyers. And so when you have a budget... And, and, you know, black films and, and Hispanic films tend to have much lower budgets. Um, when you're producing a movie on a ten dollars or $15,000 budget, you have to turn a profit. And, you know, it could take, you know, back then it could take two years to only sell 2,000 pieces and to sell to mom-and-pop stores and to sell to, you know, your cable network. And you don't want to run the risk of producing a project that you cannot turn a profit on. So when Christian, he used to do, and, and, and I love Christian, he's a good friend of mine, but um, you know, back then what he, he had a line, his best-selling line was, My Baby Got Back. And for those of you who would remember, um, there was, th- that the title came from a, a hip-hop song. Mm-hmm. And... Um, as did most black movies back then, yes. were titles of hip-hop songs. I, I think I was in Pumps in the Rump, um, <laughs> amongst, amongst some other titles. But most of the black women featured in My Baby Got Back were assimilative images of white women. So they were very thin black women with large 80s, 90s boob jobs and long hair weaves and very you know Eurocentric features. But you didn't see a lot of curvaceous women, which was indicative of the song that Sir Mix-a-Lot wrote in the first place. Mm -hmm. And his reason for that is because he was producing for his buying audience, which were white men that were interested in um, black women that were an assimilation of white women. And my theory is that in most most fetishized ethnic sex... um, the consumer is looking for either a ghettoized, debased image of of women of color um, so that they can justify that sexual interest as it's only one of them, so it doesn't really matter. My sex, my sexual interest in them doesn't matter as much because it's just one of them, kind of similar to what Celine mentioned about the, um, the, the images of, of Asian women in porn. It's very similar. Or it's the, you know, the idea that this woman is um, resembles, you know, white women with the lighter skin and the long hair weaves and the the European features, so that it's she's almost one of us. So it's it's okay that I'm, I'm into her. So she's almost one of us. That um, that kind of racially ambiguous image of of a woman, so that it's not identified with. Um, Crossing, crossing the, the other side of the tracks, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So when you have those very d- diverse images that people allow themselves to be attracted to, that's what the porn producers are producing for. They're producing for this fetishized image of racial attraction. Um, 
And, you know, I, I watched a documentary on Playboy years ago, and Hugh Hefner said in the documentary, Playboy is not a trendsetter. We wait until someone else proves the trend, and then we perfect it. And that is why you don't see a lot of diversity in the type of content that's out there being produced, because people don't want to waste their budget on something that's not going to sell. And part of that, which part of that lends to you guys and other consumers who are growing up in a generation that is accustomed to free, which means stolen <laughs> porn, because if you don't buy the type of material that you're interested in, then you can't prove to the producers that there is a viable marketplace for that porn. So, and, and you know, I said at, I think it was Senate Kink, I made a, a comment about how um, black male consumers and other consumers of color, because of the economic disparity, don't have the same type of disposable income. So they're less likely to go out and purchase something that is less than what it is that they're looking for. So if they want a video of black girls with purple nail polish popping balloons and your website has lots of other women of women with purple nail polish popping balloons but not black women guess what they're going to download they're going to rent they're not going to buy it they're going to wait until they find exactly what they're looking for in order to get to to spend their money where where they with the product that they, that they want and you know i i I lend this to, let's say, someone that's a sneakerhead. You know, you may want that one pair of, you know, you may spend $300 on a pair of Jordans because it's the exact pair of Jordans that you want, but you're not going to go spend 50 bucks on a pair of Converse just to get you by. It's the same thing when it comes down to porn. You have a, a, a marketplace, a consumer marketplace that's not being um, fulfilled and therefore the, the prospective consumers are not buying the product. And the companies in turn are not doing the market research in order to figure out why are these consumers not, why are these prospective consumers not buying? What do we have to do to make them spend money? So all they do is continue to produce product for the existing marketplace and not branching out to try to, you know, in, in the same way that other companies would, other types of products would. So that, that's, in a nutshell, why I think why why you see that disparity, why there isn't that that extra type of uh, you know why those types of other diversity isn't isn't present in porn, um, it's you know and 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 it's an easily easily solvable um, issue. You just have to spend money. You know, the customers have to spend money. You have to contact companies and say, I'd really like to see this performer with this performer doing this, and if enough. You know, fans are saying to the companies the types of things that they want to see, you will get it. Um, Christian Mann hired Ayana Angel years ago as, his, as a contract girl, and it was because on a porn message board called, B, called Black Girl Online that he asked the fans, why are you guys not spending money? What do you want to see in my movies? And they told him, we want to see girls with butts. <laughs> with real, with big butts and hips and curves, and the next, like within three months, he hired a curvy black woman as a contract girl. So the the power of the fans is there to get the type of product that you're looking for. You just have to put your money in where your mouth is. Thank you. 
thank you, Cinnamon, for a perfect segue. Speaking of curves, <laughs> April, um, you proudly showcase your own body in your work. And given the ideal uh, beauty standard in our culture and in porn, mainstream porn anyway, you obviously offer something different. Do you see your performances as a kind of body positive activism? And have you, in your time in porn, seen a shift in the way that BBW performers are represented? And maybe we should define BBW performers first. Well, the definition of BBW is big, beautiful woman or women. And um, I, I consider myself that. I, I like the word fat. I know there's a lot of different... Um, Marie likes voluptuous, <laughs> curvy. Um, <laughs> I absolutely do see my performance and involvement in porn as a um, social activism uh, for body positivity. Uh, when I first did my first few scenes, I did it with the, the motivation was to try something new and to have fun, have a new ex experience. And then once I started getting asked to do more more work, I had to take a step back and think, uh, okay, well, if I'm gonna continue doing this, I need to, for myself, I need to have a very strong reason as to why I'm doing this. So I decided that um, it's a lot of fun, <laughs> but um, the, the motivation for my work, uh, it, I decided would be to show other fat women and the world that we can um, own our sexuality, express our sexuality, that we can feel beautiful. I want my work to challenge the norms of beauty and what's considered um, desirable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, with that, that that's, that's what my statement is. Um, uh, there are, I don't know, um, I don't... <laughs> um, I think the, the BBW porn that is being created, I think it's still really geared towards the male consumer. And with my work, and when I take on a pro, you know, I go ahead and accept a project, I think about my legacy and I think about how will this movie portray not just a, a plus size woman, but women in general, will I be portrayed in a good way? Because I want to make sure that my image, because I consider myself, um, a performance artist, and with my work, I, I, I'm, I consider it self-expression. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that everything is right for me, uh, to the most that I can. You know, once the, the once the footage is made, I have no control over that. But going into it, I want to make sure that everything is, you know, something that I believe in. And doing porn, you're really exposing yourself. You're literally just putting yourself all the way out there and making yourself pretty vulnerable. So I feel like that porn is a very honest form of self-expression. And yeah, so the motivations behind it is to um, make a statement to everybody, especially plus size women, that we can feel sexy, we can have our style, we can enjoy sex. We don't have to wait till we lose 30, 40, whatever pounds. We don't have to base our self-esteem on the scale, on our gene size, on, on anything. We have to base our self-esteem on our brain and to decide to be happy and confident 
And then everything, after you decide that <laughs> your body is not going to de decide or determine your happiness, it, it all gets easier and it gets better. So, that's me. Yay! <laughs> I totally love that. Sorry. Like, I feel like stand on that one. Sorry. <laughs> one of the biggest assumptions people make is that there are no men involved in the feminist porn movement. Um, which is absolutely not true. And in fact, I want to take a moment to call out another contributor to the Feminist Porn Book and a surprise guest at today's conference who you are free to mob with your fan you know, requests. And that is Danny Wilde. I'm here. Just stand what? up, Danny. I think Danny and Carlos are both very good example of men who are actively engaged in the feminist porn movement um, as participants as well as allies. And so, Carlos, I'm, I'm wondering what other assumptions people make about you and about your work in pornography that are wrong. Well, some of the assumptions um, people make are that I'm not really an artist. Uh, I was... Um, I got my first book cover when I was 19 for Delibus Books, and I, I was exhibiting and selling work for a long time, freelancing, before I ever shot um, a nude scene. But, but in route to shooting pornography, I was able to bring my credentials and actually put off some really funny things for major companies. Like Adam and Eve gave me a five-picture deal, which they had no idea I was going to be hiring uh, black, Latin, Asian, fat people and doing all kinds of crazy shit with their money. <laughs> <laughs> for like <clears throat> two years, it was pretty awesome. I got to... I work with a very diverse cast, which is very important because the most important thing is empowering people. It's not just, we want to see more. There has to be a person to make that. And my goal as a filmmaker and artist to make it the best. I have to think about my cast, my crew, my sound. I have to really be a director. I mean, some people use the word director like it's, hey, I'm a director. I just showed up here. But it involves a lot to score and really think about really minute things, I think. Tristan has a really amazing set, and I try to have a great set, but I also think about what's my vision. I think about the people that inspire me, like real filmmakers like David Lynch or Gaspar Noe or um, Harmony Corinne or the School of Dogma 95. I come from a real filmmaking process, so by the time I get to casting or, or coordinating the sex, I want it to be spectacular, like authentic in the presentation, but also be like, whoa, that was fucking cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> I incorporate, like, I spend, before I even, when I'm working with April, we think about our movies. It's a lot of thought. I might listen to, I'm working with this new uh, musician, 747, so I have a soundtrack. So I just, like, play it every day and think about the scenes of April walking down the street with new heels and the sound, and in comes Guy. So I think Hi. about that. I really think about the process of, in addition to being a feminist filmmaker, porn maker, and being a male, I have to take the responsibility of making sure it's really... Um, spectacular because I want my peers, uh, the artists that I grew up on. I grew up on, you know, it's, it's very fascinating about porn because <clears throat> art sex is way more extreme. I, when I was in high school, Robert Mablethorpe, Nan Golden, uh, Andre Serrano, that's like extreme sexuality in a much more real way besides two lights and a guy fucking in the bathroom. That's like, <laughs> Serrano had, you know, full on pissing, Mablethorpe is fighting, you know, museums. You have politicians involved in sexuality in the early 90s that, like, really magnify, like, 
what is it you're going to do with your art? So mm -hmm. in addition to growing up in Baltimore, a really fascinating thing that happened is that John Waters is shooting Crybaby with Tracy Lures and Johnny Depp at my middle school. So like uh, my, my brain is kind of burned and like the, the idea of like, well, I can do whatever I want. I can cast actors and porn and music and the whole city was happy. It was like, yeah, Tracy Lords, cool. You shut down porn. Hey, wait, cool. You're young. So John Waters <laughs> is like a fat drag queen man, like running around the city. I was like, yeah, this is fucking great. So to me, that's normal. So when I got to make films and really bring it to like my audience, and my peers, I wanted my films to be like fun, um, inspire one, and also um, be really authentic. The, the one little note is that in this whole industry, the thing that's making the feminist porn movement so special is that it's very DIY. It's like a collection of really badass women and badass artists that are like, we're going to do it. Like, we've seen it. Like, Obama won the 49% cool. Now we're here. Like, all, <laughs> all, the, all the outsiders, like, it's, it's a collection of really fascinating, powerful outsiders that are smart and saving their money and busting their ass to really say, this is us, and we hope that it reflects, you know, our peers. And that's what I try to do with all of my work. Yay. Jizz, because you are in a position where you've actually, you are, are what's considered a crossover star, you work in both indie, DIY, queer, feminist porn, and you've had the opportunity to work within mainstream porn. I'm wondering if you think all of this radical goodness that we've been talking about here today is limited just to the world of feminist and independent porn. Or, or have you seen it start to seep into the mainstream? Um, I think that, well, one of my hesitations with feminist porn as like a noun is that it kind of implies that anything that doesn't identify itself as feminist in its marketing or in the, the people talking about its work is inherently not feminist and that it's inherently sexist or inherently wrong. And I do think, you know, in terms of like looking at porn as a sex positive or looking at porn as with a sex positive gaze, that you're looking at a medium that um, you know performers have ad you know, have choice, have agency in what they're doing, um, and if it's consensual and ethical, it can be feminist regardless of whether or not it self identifies as being a feminist work. Um, so I like looking at it in that in that gaze. Um, uh, there was like this in the in the question um, in the thing. Sorry, I'm kind of like thrown off because I had this really like amazing like one thing I wanted to say about this this question. Um, so there's this feminist allies blog that said. Um, uh, this article I wrote um, is a perfect example of what listening to folks who do porn can do to one's ideas about working in porn. And I really love that they said the word listening, you know, and I think that's um, like a description of what we're doing right now um, is that we're listening, we're talking. I mean, raise your hand if you have a smartphone on your person. You know, like all of us are able to listen to each other online, like porn stars, like Tracy Kwan, like Celine said, Tracy Kwan said, like porn stars are people too, essentially, and they have a Twitter and they're talking and per performers talk to one another, audience member, or audience members, consumers talk to each other about what they're watching. Um, we are becoming vastly more of um, a society that's better listeners. And part of listening also is consuming porn as well, um, for sure. Um, Sorry, I get nervous too. I'm trying to imagine you all naked, and unfortunately, it's not helping me. <laughs> um, 
the idea of like, you know, can this goodness be applied to mainstream porn as, or mainstream porn as well, which I have the question too, like what's mainstream then? If, we're, if we do look at, you know, feminist porn is one thing and mainstream porn is another, well, what's the difference and how do you define mainstream then in that context, which is why I like feminist gaze, feminist porn as a gaze to analyze um, works. Um, I think that, I think, I, I can say it like, I think there's not, like, I don't want to say there's anything wrong with bad porn or mainstream porn or however when, when it, you know you look at porn as a four-letter word of what we want to do something different from i don't think there's anything wrong with it um assuming that it's consensual and that performers have the you know agency and then no one's being exploited in a way that they're not comfortable with um <laughs> but i think that um uh i lost my train of thought for a second it is really nerve-wracking up here um <laughs> that the danger, the dangers in having, um, if we're looking at mainstream as a limited um, form of pornography, I think that there's danger in that. So I think, um, let me backtrack a second because I do have a quote. So, okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, Annie Sprinkle, who is a pioneer of feminist porn, has a quote where she says that the answer to bad porn is not no porn, but to make better porn. And to this, I would add, to actually make more porn. So there's more, more diversities, um, more different kinds of porn that, that um, are available to choose from. Um, performers on stage, Dylan, Cinnamon, and April, all um, talked about representation in porn and how they see themselves represented in porn. Um, and so when you have pornography that's very limited in you know, who's performing in it, what kind of sex acts they're doing, um, without, with the absence of sex education and comprehensive you know, sex education in schools and, and you know, in our society, we look at the only example of explicit sex in porn. And when you have a limited, view, you know, limited example of what that looks like, then that kind of starts to paint a picture and educate for, you know, for, even if it doesn't intend to, it starts to educate the viewer on you know, who gets to do porn, what sexy looks like, what kind of sex is okay. And so that's where I see the, the dangers in having that limitation of a very narrow scope of what porn is. And that's why I think that more porn is the answer to, um, to seeing our own desires reflected in screen. And that's, like, that's basically literally why we're sitting here and like, why we're doing what we're doing is we're all trying to get our own desires and our own voices to be listened to um, out there in the world. Um, Mahatma Gandhi um, probably wasn't talking, you know, intending to, to speak about porn when he said, <laughs> oh my God, I totally missed this up. No, he wasn't. <laughs> like, go for it, go for it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi has um, been... Uh, You're so cute. Go ahead. Okay. You, you've got this. You've yeah. got this. Got you. you know, like, okay, come on, come on. Like, come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. What does Mahatma Gandhi say? <laughs> well, <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi is quoted saying that um, be the change you want to see in the world. And whether or not he was implying porn <laughs> when he said this, I think in this case, in our case, is certainly true. Yes. Yes. You did it. story is make the porn you want to see in the world. Um, we have time for some questions. Person in the front row whose name I don't know, do you have questions for me? On behalf of the group. 
You yes. can give them to me or you can ask them of me. You can ask them. You'll ask them. Okay. On behalf of Queer Commission. Okay, great. Good. Okay. So um, AS Queer Commission submitted a question, and um, their question is, how does feminist porn avoid commodifying queerness while reproducing it for consumption at the same time? Wow. Great question. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Wow. That's an awesome question. Um, I, you know, not, not to go right back to what Jiz just said, but I think that the answer is in the amount that's being created, who's creating it, and how it's being created. So having performed in a lot of queer porn and make a lot of queer porn, um, I really feel like the core of authenticity at individuals expressing themselves is what is showing queerness without reproducing it for commodification. I mean, definitely I'm making movies for people to buy them and fap to them and enjoy them, but um, I'm not making them to reproduce an image of queerness that then someone can say oh well that's what queerness looks like and now I'm done with that conversation it's to be a part of films and productions and work with companies that continue the dialogue and continue that conversation so it's not just you know this is a company we're going to make a queer movie we're going to hire all these queer people and that's the one movie we're going to make I mean Granted, I've been on those productions. That didn't go very far. But um, the companies that I most enjoy working with are continuing to make movies, you know, like Pink and White Productions. There's a whole set of websites now and films dedicated toward queer people signing up to say, I want to fuck on camera. I want to show you my queerness because I want it to be out there for people to see how I'm getting off, how I'm enjoying myself, what my sex looks like. Um, and again, yes, people are totally purchasing that, but they're purchasing the authenticity of the person as they want to present it and they want to show it. And it's a continuing cycle. It doesn't just stop with well, we're going to fetishize queerness and sell it to you. It's we're going to show you queerness to blow your mind and open up the world and everyone that sees it and comes in contact with it to the wide varieties of bodies and gender identities and you know colors and expressions and everything that queer can possibly be so that it's impossible for you moving forward to think it is one thing. We will make that impossible for you with all the representations and everything we're doing. I think, it, I think it's important too to 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 understand that there's nothing wrong with making a profit. You know, I mean, each and every one of you, when you graduate from from UCSB, are going to hope to get a job so you can pay your student loans and pay your rent. So don't look at the commodification of any niche as necessarily a bad thing. If you produce a good product people will buy it, and then you can pay your bills. Like, okay? And, and that's the important part. Like, don't, don't get so caught up in not, don't make a product in order to, earn, to make money. Make a product that is going to be viable. The same thing goes with music. The same thing goes with art. The same thing goes with, with photography. Produce something that is real and true for who you are, and people will buy it, and you will earn a living. That's the whole point of this. Like None of us up here that are performers or, or, or a director, we don't do this just purely to have a good time. <laughs> we do this because we have bills to pay and some, you know, like I have a family to feed and you know, we, we all do this because we want to be able to also pay our bills. So com the commodification of your own sexuality isn't necessarily a bad thing if you take ownership of it and you utilize it in, in, to shed light on what it is that you, whatever it is that you're trying to share with other people. And, and I want to be able to get to as many questions as okay. possible. 
So I'm going to take the next question. Do you have another question for us? You don't. Okay. okay. Wait, so I just want to prioritize the, yeah, the, yeah, these questions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do so we're going to open it up to all of you. Raise your hand. Tell us if you have a question. Are we going to have someone run around with a mic? Do Can we give that her the great. mic? And I know that some of my students have written questions. <laughs> no pressure. Raise your hand, and I'll get you a mic. While while we're seeing that, you know, people act that uh, act like you know. Pornography is the one place that sexuality gets commodified when, in fact, uh, we commodify sexuality and our lives are commodified because we live under capitalism. And so it's not exceptional to that pornography and sex work is a site where sexuality is commodified. Um, but we, uh, under those terms, we have to negotiate that. Like, it is interesting that we come to our sexuality as consumers, and that is a problematic because we want to be critical of this political economy that is fundamentally exploitative. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, my question is directed at Tristan. Uh, in the History of Sexuality by Michel Foucault, he explores the development of scientific study of sex, uh, which is an attempt to unearth the truth of sex, a phenomenon he claims is peculiar to Western culture. As a sex educator and a pornographer, why do you wish to seek the truths of sex, or do you even wish to seek any truths at all? What is the difference between good sex education and bad sex education? Okay. What's the truth? Of okay, so we're throwing Foucault just at me. Right. Totally fine. Um, totally fine. Got this. Um, yes, Tristan. Well, I think it's I, I think it's a really good question um, because there's a lot of talk up here about about authenticity, and I, I do want to acknowledge that um, that I 100% believe in performers performing authentically and representing their sexuality authentically, but I also realize that authenticity and truth are also socially constructed, right? So, they're, they're, so I don't know that they're, I don't know that I can shoot Dylan Ryan a hundred times and, and one of those times capture the, the absolute truth of Dylan Ryan's sexuality. Um, I'm just gonna get the truth that she's willing to share with me on that day with that person, Danny Wilde, um, uh, one of the best scenes I ever shot, um, with that person in that context for that moment, right? So I, so I, I, I want to I wanna acknowledge the kind of fleetingness of these, these truths. There are multiple truths, and I think a lot of us are trying to tell our own truth or truths up here through our work. Um, but I don't think that there is one one singular truth. Um, I do see my work, however, as sort of uncovering truth and education about things that we normally keep hidden or normally don't speak about. Um, part of why I really like to do sex education through porn is because there are people who really have a hard time learning when you're simply talking to them um, or showing them diagrams. Um, Dylan said earlier, we, in sex education, we talk to people's brains, not their bodies, but it's their bodies where their desires are located, 
very powerful statement. Um, and so sometimes it's like in order to teach, we actually do need to get really explicit. And I do need to get up all in your business and show people your genitals, what they look like, how they change when you get turned on, and how we might make them happy in a few different ways. Um, and be that specific, be that specific. So at this point in time in the culture we live in, um, what, what constitutes bad sex education is the dominant model of sex education, which is abstinence only sex education. Abstinence only sex education doesn't work and it disempowers young people by withholding information, education, resources, and tools from them rather than giving them information, resources, and tools and helping them navigate their sexual lives. And I also consider it my job to say that there may be a Foucauldian misreading that's being put out there. And I have to say that Tristan Taramino's answer is, is Foucauldian in the sense that Foucault argues that we cannot ultimately prioritize sex as the site of knowledge, and actually what we do see are a competition of discourses of knowledge rather than one knowledge that comes out of sexuality. Mm -hmm. So UCSB, you know, bring it on in a better way, I think. Reread yeah. <laughs> 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 Foucault. Hi. Thanks Hi. to everyone for putting this on. It's super interesting. Um, I have a question about consumers, and uh, we've been talking a little bit about how today a lot of consumers, especially younger consumers, are not purchasers, they're pirates. Um, and then Tristan, you are also talking about a type of consumer who has a social responsibility to buy better porn. And then Cinnamon, you are also talking about a type of consumer who wants something so incredibly specific that maybe they have to buy it. Um, but I'm wondering about all of these other people who are buying this like mainstream porn um, and what, who they are and why they're buying it. Like, who are these people? Are they getting older and are they dying? Um, I'm just, seriously, if you have any insight into this main consumer base that the type of stuff you're putting out is trying to sort of cater to different type of people or give them something else, who is that consumer base and who are they? Um, I, the majority consumers that we see mainstream porn produced for it, are white male consumers who have a little bit more disposable income in order to be able to, they just buy whatever is available to them. Or they're longtime consumers who understand the, dy the dynamic of, um, you know, purchasing porn as opposed to... Um, as opposed to just getting it online for free. I mean, you guys have a huge disadvantage because you're com you are the second generation of porn consumers that are, have been introduced to, on to online materials, art, music, um, as a free item. Um, it's starting with Napster in the 90s where um, people would go online and download and, and file share music for free. Porn um, picked up that same... Um, that same technique in the later 90s and the porn industry just didn't 
bother because they didn't think people would stop buying porn to actually go after end users the way that the music industry did. And unfortunately, because porn companies are were so slow at the draw with um, with you know, working with the internet and utilizing their websites to actually um, give deliver porn in a, in a different manner to their consumers, they the the technology has now um, surpassed what the companies are able to to do. So it's harder for the companies to go in now mm-hmm. and um, and re and recreate or create a new delivery system. So the majority of the porn consumers that we tend to see at like conventions, for example, are consumers that have been buying porn forever. They're, they've been buying porn because that's how they were introduced to it. Um, we are seeing a lot now, a lot more now, like, with the advent of social media, that because fans have an opportunity to get to know porn stars and get to um, have a direct relationship mm-hmm. with them the, um, you know which is also you're also seeing it in um, mainstream Hollywood and in the music industry as well when consumers develop a relationship with their with the stars that they're attracted to or that they're into their work they feel more um, more pressured to not pressured but it, it's a soft sell to get people to buy that's what it is so if I go online and I talk about my family and what I cook for dinner and I, I create this this image of that I'm just like you when I soft sell you the, my latest column or whatever other project I'm working on um, people are going to buy it so that's how we've we've started to to shift the um, the dynamic of people you know like yourselves that are not buying. I mean, you know, you guys will you know have get get a chance to meet Dylan and and Jizz and and April and myself. And what's going to happen is you'll go home later tonight and you will buy a video. Oh, you don't have to go. You don't have to go tonight. We have them here. We have them us. here, actually. So you them and, right you'll, now. and you'll buy books right too now. right after this. This is over. Um, <laughs> and have us sign them. Does anyone want to? Chime in on that. Uh, I can I speak to that from the research end. Um, there's uh, an enormous uh, 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 weight of uh, ideas about uh, who, the, who the people are who watch porn, who watch mainstream porn. And this is a vastly under-researched area, you know, and that's certainly something that uh, we are going to be looking at. You know, what is porn for men, you know, uh, how is it a form of popular culture for them? You know, uh, how do they uh, watch it? How do they use it in their everyday lives? I mean, there's very little research about uh, uh, what what the mainstream viewers are, do, who are largely men, uh, are doing. I mean, there's a few things like I'm thinking of David Loftus's book, uh, "What Men Really Watch." You know, where he interviewed, uh, and it was anonymously and online, uh, 150 men, and asked them, you know, how porn figures in their everyday lives and what they like and what they don't like. And it was, it was surprising to anybody who has conventional notions of what men are and what they want, what they like, what they don't like, and also what it means to them in their everyday lives. So much more research like that needs to be done. And at least a third of consumers are women, though. No, this, right? this stat it? that's rolling around from Salon.com still no, has no, no. no source. I'm saying from AVN magazine since 80s, they would have this pie chart of the gender makeup. 
What is your finding? So, well, so, well, Salon quote has been circulating this quote, which is one, one in three online porn watchers is, is a woman. Uh-huh. But there's no citation for it. Mm -hmm. And when pressed, you can't right. get one. And that's part of the problem Pro of doing part of the research. Problem. We don't know, yeah. actually, yeah. the race to gender. Another question? Oh, in the back with the red hat. This will, this will probably be the last question, but what I'll say mm. is we are moving to the Michael Douglas lobby to books sign some books. We, we have a limited number of books, so please feel free to politely run over your neighbor to get one. Um, we're going to sign books for about a half hour, and then we are going to walk over to... The USEN for our 3 p.m. workshop. The USEN. Okay, go. I always wondered, um, how do you sign up to be a performer in porn? Like, is there a minor league <laughs> system, a farm club? No, no, no. It may sound funny, but I, I like, you know, to know, like, how to supplement my income by becoming a porn star okay. or, you know, in the film. And, number, and the second part of that question is, is there a, a, a database of music supervisors for porn? Because a lot of the music is very cheesy and not as, as dope yeah. as it can be. Yeah. I, I would like to introduce that, that guest. That is Mellow Man Ace from Cypress Hill. Welcome. I hear up. I think it's fairly straightforward um, how you get into porn. Um, we would just bring you up on stage with all these people watching. Um, you would take your clothes off. We would present you with a woman who was slightly ambivalent about both being there and having sex with you. Or maybe bordering on hostile. And then we would put six men with large things like lights and cameras right all up in your shit, like all up in it, like under your balls with a light. Um, and then ask you to get an erection and maintain it for, you know, about two hours. Um, and then if you can do that, like you're, you're in. And it's cold. And then, or, and then cold. come on cue. And then come on cue. I just want to take a moment. <laughs> I just want to take a moment since you bring this up because I know we're all laughing but um, I feel and I know that a lot of people on this stage sort of second me in this um, men are very often the unsung heroes of pornography men in porn do an amazing job they have a very hard job to do they're very under respected they're underpaid um, porn is actually one of the few industries where women make more than men which is awesome for us but really hard for men especially because they have to be hard for hours at a time um, which if you think about it physiologically is really really difficult and I know that everyone assumes that guys are on Viagra and it's super easy and they just show up and what a great job and all guys are like well how do I get into porn I really want to do that it's not really an easy job um, and guys don't get as much recognition as they deserve for the hard work that they do um, and I think that in this whole context and conversation about feminist porn, there are quite a lot of male performers that are maybe not feminist identified, but do really awesome feminist work in the movies, the way they show up, the way they are on set, the way they treat female performers, the way they work with directors. Um, and they oftentimes don't even get their faces shown. You know, they're just um, moving for hours at a time. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, big, big round of applause for the guys in porn. Right on. 
it's it's kind of funny, but I actually always feel sorry for the dudes on set <laughs> because one, it's really hard. It's really hard to have sex with a lot of people around you and then stop. Like, okay, that's good. Now stop. We're gonna take five minutes and change. You're like, what the f- happened? Like, that was a, I was so focused. Like, I was shot one time. It was freezing cold. We had to bring in a heater. Like, there's lights, and you had to stand there and just be like, really dialed in. So practice at home first. <laughs> Practice in the snow, like, you know, with your partner and multiple obstacles in the car and elevators and alleys. Like, practice if you can keep wood. Have someone yell at you, like, stay there right now. Okay, hold it. Now, go. Good, perfect. I, I always tell people, tell guys, too, that ask about getting into the business, the, the old school trick of getting into the business is to find a girl that is commercially viable for whatever um, type of porn you're looking to get into that people will want to shoot who is willing to only shoot with you. Now, mind you, that's only going to last for about three months (laughs) because people will not want to be interested in actually shooting just her with just you. But that's usually the easiest way in the door for most male performers. That way, you know, if if a... female-identified performer says, oh, I'm, I want to shoot porn and these are the types of scenes I want to shoot then, um, and I want to work with this guy, then people will shoot you, you know, because of her. And that's usually the easiest way to walk into a career in the business as a performer. And get a good test. Have a clean test and practice with a condom. Yes. It's very hard Save to do. Save sex. Save sex. <laughs> so we are going to mm-hmm. be on time. I'm sorry, I saw another hand, but there is a class that comes into this space, and there are a lot of bodies to move out of it. Um, panelists, you're going to stay here because we're going to have some pictures, but we are going to be in the hallway momentarily to answer more questions and sign your books. Thank you. Thank you. What? Yeah, Cole's going to come up, and we're going to do You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.